to the Sojourn Church podcast. We are glad you are here, and thanks for listening. As a church, we exist to exalt and enjoy the supremacy of Jesus Christ in all things, equip the saints, and extend the gospel to all people by reproducing disciples and churches for the glory of God. More information about the life and mission of Sojourn Church can be found at SojournTulsa.org. That's S-O-J-O-U-R-N, Tulsa.org. It is uh, good to be back with you guys. Um, we had a wonderful, um, restful time for a couple of weekends and a couple of weeks there. And so great to be back with you guys and back to um, kind of getting ourselves uh, established in this new house that we're in. And so um, we are thankful for um, the rest and, and renewal that we got as a family and uh, glad to be back with you guys. But we missed you guys and uh, we've been kind of looking forward to this step to get into this place, um, uh, being a little bit closer to where we're at and so um, geographically. And so um, that, that's a good thing that we're, we're hopefully going to be able to be a little bit more involved with people's lives and stuff. And so we've always been able to do that in the past. It's been a weird um, few years just w- with that scenario in church planting itself, all the little things that have to go on, and then uh, just uh, feeling a little bit more disconnected. So we're excited about that. Um, we're going to be spending our time in John 17. So if you want to turn there, that's where we're going to spend um, the bulk of our time. Um, and so... Uh, this is Jesus' prayer right before the crucifixion. So let me lay out for you, just so you'll understand, this is after his three and a half years of ministry, and the disciples have gathered together. And so if you remember those, um, those final discourses that start in uh, John 12 to 13 and goes all the way through the crucifixion, but John 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. And so um, they've already had the, the Lord's Supper, the implementation of that, and Judas has taken the, uh, the little piece of morsel of bread, and then he's left the room, and he's went out to get the and Jesus has now got the 11, and they've left that room, and they've gone on, they're walking, uh, and they're walking, it's dark at night, and they're talking, and so um, this is that last time when he's actually starting, he's repeatedly told the disciples that I'm going to be betrayed, all of you guys are going to betray me, and remember they had arguments about that, Jesus won, and so then they had uh, um, some some concern because he kept saying like, I'm going to be put to death, and they're like, no way, Jesus, and he's like, no, really, it's going to happen, you're not changing this, and you don't want to change this. It's good for you. Believe me. And, and these people are going to come and they're going to arrest me. And so um, now we're up to this point and uh, where the famous things for as kids, you might remember where he was literally just bleeding uh, or he was sweating blood because of just the reality of the weightiness. And it wasn't the fear of nails being put in his hand. It wasn't the fear of necessarily just physical death uh, because he's God Almighty. It was, you're taking the only holy true, righteous thing in the universe that has a mind and a heart and a soul, a spirit like that, um, and, and the holiness of Jesus beginning to feel our sin covering him. So, so that's what is happening there. So lots of verses about that. So, you know, Second uh, Corinthians 5, uh, 21 there, that for our sake, the Father began to cover him like a blanket in our sin. For our sake, he made him to be sin, even though he didn't sin, who was without sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. And so that's what he's beginning to feel. 
Um, the disciples are still not getting it like many times through those three years. And so we're going to see this. And I want to show you what was paramount in Jesus' mind and his thoughts and his heart. That at this crucial, crucial time, um, what was he really, really thinking through? What was on his mind? What was on his heart? As they're walking along this path and Judas has just went and done this thing. Again, not fear like, oh, when are those guys going to show up? But I mean, what, what, am I, what would I want to say to my father, my heavenly father who's in control of all things if I, as I've submitted myself in human form and I know what's about to happen? What, what, what is revealing about Jesus' heart at this point? And I hope that we're going to be able to take that and see what was on his heart and mind and going back to a couple of weeks ago when I talked about investing in a few, um, that process there, and to see that idea that, that what Jesus is crying out to the Father about here is it's some big pictures of God's glory, some big pictures of the church, the foundation of the church, these disciples. But I want you to see the intimacy and the love and the unity that he talked about. And then I want us to take that observation. We're not going to go deep into the depths because John 17 has some really beautiful depths that you could spend um, over a month on. We're going to take just this, this first level of observation, and you'll see what I mean in a second, and just observing something, some repetitions in Scripture you always want to notice if there's deep, deep, deep repetition. The Jews were famous. Uh, the Israelites were famous. If there was everything, anything in the Old Testament that was repeated twice, you better take notice of it. Three times, you better pause and really think through. So we're going to see some repetition, very intentional by God here in John 17. And so... A couple of weeks ago, I threw this idea out there of investing in a few. And so this is going to tie into the idea of investing in a few people's lives. Um, and I, I said that in my office, when I had an office before we moved, um, going out of the office was a, a sheet of paper, and it just said, I'm spending my life on blank. And so there was weeks that might go by, a week or a few days, where I was so busy with church stuff or so busy with this stuff or so busy with this stuff, and I would see my boys and our family, it just seemed like we were a little afraid or a little uh, disoriented. It just wasn't, and so like, man, I've been spending my time on this and this, and that, that's good, but man, discipling this family, this is a high priority. This is more important than these other things, because this is what I know I'm going to be held responsible for this. So discipling them, uh, am I being a good spiritual leader in those things? So I'm spending my life on... Uh, many times when I've been really stressed for several months and not getting very much breaks or something, man, my thing to go to is to start looking at um, like beach beach houses. And so we, you know, in the summer we are with our schedule, we don't get to do uh, different times during the year. But man, you can tell when I'm really really stressed. My escape button is to go and start looking at places that are right there by the beach. You know, so just like it just seems like it's going to take away all the pain, and it doesn't. It doesn't. You know, everything's still there when you get back and everything. Um, actually, even in this time, I hate to admit it, but um, even this trip, I was literally, my favorite thing in the world is to be about this deep out in the ocean and just, just seeing the beautiful blue and literally God was going, it's not all that you want it to be, is it? And I was, I was literally just going like, no, 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 I want this to be. And he was just going, look around, it's, it's beautiful, it's everything. And like, this is nothing compared to what you're going to be like in heaven. This is nothing compared to what heaven's going to be. And like, this is nothing compared to the gospel transforming people's lives, is it? To see people go from dead spiritually to, to alive in Christ, to see that happen, to see the Spirit do that to her, that's powerful. And so I was standing neck deep in the water, my favorite thing in the world, out there with my boys in the ocean and him going, I'm going to take away about 25% of the fulfillment of that. I'm ripping your knees out from under you in fulfillment. 
I, I, I want you to not enjoy this as much. <laughs> that stinks. Like this is this is good. And I know I'm old enough to know. Like you, know, you can't do that. Put all your hope in the new house or the new this or the the new clothes or or the trip. Or I, I know I, I've preached those things for 25 years, and yet God was still going. Hey, even the little bit that you've trained yourself on, I'm going to rip some of that way. Not not taking away enjoyment, but just going. Be about the kingdom. Be about the kingdom. So that's just a beautiful thing when he when he when he's able to do that. And so I'm currently spending my life on. So what is that for you? What are you currently spending your life on? Um, we looked at that last week, uh, two weeks ago, looking at that. We saw Paul pouring his life into Timothy, and he told Timothy, hey, uh, what, what you've seen me live out, what you've heard me preach and teach, um, invest that. Pour that into faithful men who are able to teach others also. So we had that, that picture. I don't know if I had a slide that was showing uh, the, the things that we had talked about. Maybe it was just in my notes, but the, 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 the Paul to Timothy, the Timothy to faithful men, and the faithful men to others also. The four levels there of that we're, we're investing our life in these things. I'm spending my life on these things. Um, and what if each of us just, just did that? What, just a small amount of people right here. What, what, if, what if even even 15 in this room decided to do that, to take one or two people this next year, co-workers, people in their neighborhood, people that have nothing to do with the church, nothing with God, but just to, to maybe start a conversation, just to, hey, hey, man, I'm, I'm really uh, been convicted lately. I uh, just want some focus on my life. Uh, you know you know that I kind of go to church, and I'm, I'm a believer and everything. Don't know what you think about yourself. But, but anyway, man, would you be willing to get together and, and just like maybe just read one chapter and just kind of pray and respond to that, you'd be surprised at the number of people I mean, that, that would just say yes to that. Um, even the younger generations, they're saying they're open to that, where there was a time for 20 or 30 years where people weren't as open to some of those things. Now they're kind of open to that. Believers in the church. doesn't have to be a lost person, but believer in the church. I just wanted to grow spiritually. What if we just got together and just read and prayed, just, just maybe an hour every two weeks? Um, just what are you giving your life to? We, we saw that there was supernatural grace that's provided in that, and that all of that leads to greater glory for God and greater worship. And it also, it does work on the multiplication end. If, if 15 of us did that with one person and for the next year and, and never even brought them to service, but then after a year, where, where do you think they would be at if the Lord was granting them salvation? You think they'd be asking, hey, we're, hey so we've been doing this for like three months now. You've never taken me. Where do you go on Sundays? So do you see what happens? It does work in growing church numbers, but, but it also it, you're, you're producing disciples who are trained in the faith, not just in a tender, right? You're not just adding numbers of, of butts and seats, right? It's a person who's being trained and growing in the faith. And so we're going to look at that this week. Um, so I wanted, first of all, just to diagnose. You'll see um, the first thing we're going to do, we're going to diagnose a large part of our problem. Um, after we, so we're going to read through John 17. Then we're going to just diagnose a large part of our problem. It's not the only problem. There's many problems, but a large part of it. It, it does affect the holiness of the church. It affects the purity of Christ's bride. It affects our union and intimacy with Christ. It also affects the mission of the church if you don't do this. Um, we're also going to remove the hindrance of thinking through, well, just the, the lost world. It's an insurmountable task. It just seems so difficult. I mean, look, look where our country's at. Look where politics are at. Look at our culture. It's just insurmountable. So it's really easy in our country to go, so let me find something that just brings quick enjoyment. Let me find something that just takes away and lets me escape all the insurmountable stuff. And I want to show that it's not insurmountable. 
Jesus' plan reveals it's not insurmountable. And then also I wanted to point us to the simplicity of faithfulness, just investing in a few. So, and, and when I get to this part of this, there's going to be this little, um, little thing that I've taught through a lot of times on um, disciple-making. Um, I want you to know it truly has been life-changing for several people. I think a lot of people, the first time they saw it, it was like in, in 30 minutes, they're like, okay, so this is what I want to do with my life. Like, I know I still have, a, have to have a job. I'm going to have a family. We're going to have to have bills. We're going to do this. But, but this, I want to do this with my life. Like, I've been convicted on this, and I see that, man, I, I think I've just been sitting on the sideline. And so uh, it's life-changing for some people. It's a true assessment of what we're doing. It's been life-changing for me. Uh, this is one of the most, uh, as, even as I prepared this week, I was broken three or four times in tears reading going, man, I've, I've got to be better at this. I've got to be better at this in my own family, but also inside the people around me, some of my acquaintances, uh, inside the church. So the simplicity of abiding in the word and prayer, spiritual dependence on the spirit, rest and renewal, what we've been talking about, faithfulness to Christ, but also his purpose for the church. So asking that question, what are you living for? And then we're going to look at this idea of what did Jesus live for and call his disciples to live for? In John 17, I think it's revealed. What's the connection between me following Christ, or your life, wanting to be obedient, following Christ, and making disciples, and then the reality, the connection between that and the reality of the world around you? Um, thinking through that. It's, it's not an insurmountable task. Um, and, and then one of, the, one of the last questions is, you know, so how do we know if I'm really growing? Well, if you're doing this, you will begin to know whether you're growing or whether you're not. Um, you will have iron sharpening iron. You will have people close enough in your life to see some things that they may just, you know, after two or three or four months, like, hey, I, I kind of noticed this, the way that maybe you kind of, sometimes you kind of treat your family or the way that you're always talking about this one thing. Is there any maybe possible idolatry going on there that they would have the right to do this? That would be a loving thing. And so creating an ethos of that. Um, on this idea of life-on-life disciple-making, um, there are some great quotes on this idea of this. So Greg Ogden, a great guy that writes a lot on disciple-making, says that he calls it the process of intentional and purposeful life-on-life discipleship towards Christ-likeness, um, making disciples, teaching them all that I've commanded you. So a little quote from the Great Commandment there, a Great Commission, um, that results in glorification to God and exaltation of Jesus Christ. So if you do this, it leads to glory to God and, and, and exaltation of Christ. Disciples cannot be mass-produced. We cannot drop people into a program and see disciples emerge at the end of a production line. So sometimes we, we've kind of, in, in the church growth era, um, for about 40, 50 years, that was what was kind of thought, was like, the bigger the building, just get all the people in here and set up programs, you know, Monday night, Wednesday night, Friday night, and then at the end of the week, it's just going to produce a certain product. And so he was saying, that's not it. It takes time to make disciples. It takes individual, personal attention. There's no one that would pr probably try to argue with that. We can, so in teaching or in a, in, a, in a program, we could present facts or some um, valuable information, but it's usually an info dump. And then whether you take it and, and apply it, we don't know, right? Because you, you, you may not take what was been taught and actually begin to grow in it. A discipling is the intentional relationship in which we walk alongside other disciples in order to encourage, equip, and challenge one another in love to grow toward maturity in Christ. It includes equipping the disciple to teach others as well. So it's not just about you even getting someone to disciple you. It's got to kick into where you go, oh, you know what? I'm going to take the things I've learned, and I want to have one or two people that I'm now discipling. And again, this happens any place that you work, vocation-wise, Singapore, um, Sri Lanka, uh, Budapest or Tulsa. Vocation-wise, it works. 
um, uh, I'm sorry, location-wise, vocation, whatever your job is, you're a stay-at-home mom, you're, you're a guy leading a company, you're, you're a CEO, you're a, um, you're a teacher, you're, you're whatever you're doing, um, you can do it vocation-wise and you can do it location-wise. Um, John Stott said this, he's passed away now, he says, as we face the new millennium, so this is I think about 40 years ago when this quote came out, uh, we acknowledge that the state of the church is marked by growth without depth. Our zeal to go wider has not been matched by commitment to go deeper. And that was at the Joint Statement on Discipleship at the Eastbourne Consultation. And then for many years, 25 or more, the church growth school has been dominant. I rejoice in the statistics, but we, may, but we must say it has been growth without depth. I believe it was Chuck Colson who said, the church is 3,000 miles wide and an inch deep. We are babes in Christ. Newer books have said, as the church Christian culture is, is what they would call a um, um, biblically... Um, ignorant or, or biblically uninformed. They might go to services once every three months, once every two months, maybe once or twice a week. But if, if what you're getting is not the Bible, it's three ways, three simple ways to have a better marriage. Three ways to have a, a great, uh, blessed um, economy in the middle of a, a downturned economy. And so, you know, all these like uh, three, three simple tricks to raise perfect teenagers. That's not what the Bible is teaching, right? And so they're taking like a little proverb and then giving you some some pop psychology and promising it's going to pay off. So that that's not the way. And so a lot of biblical um, lacking in that. So let's start off in John 17. Um, we're going to read those first four um, verses, and then we're going to go through the rest of John 17. But I want to pause after those first four or five verses. So when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life. So remember, we've talked about this. Whatever your ideas of here's what heaven is, getting to finally be reunited with Grandpa, fishing, Man, be reunited with dad, be reunited with mom, getting to, to, to eat all the, the French fries and greasy uh, cheeseburgers without having to worry about cholesterol. Well, whatever heaven is to you, Jesus says that, that that's not it. Here's what heaven is. The centerpiece, the, 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 the huge paramount thing in heaven is it's you, Father. He says, this is eternal life, that they may know you and Jesus Christ whom you sent. And so the people around us, if we don't make that part of our gospel plea, if it's just like, man, I'm just worried that you're going to end up going to hell, that that is true. You will go to hell without your sins being forgiven. But if you don't make part of the gospel plea, the 98% should be, you should be enjoying Jesus. You're missing out on God. Like that's part of my plea as, as we were, I was at a car like yesterday and the last words I was saying to the car salesman guy was like, what, what I'm concerned about, man, is like, not just like whether you go to heaven or hell at the end, like I think that's pretty clear, but like, you're missing out on Jesus, and I'm getting Jesus every day. I'm getting the God who created everything every day, and you're missing out on that for much lesser enjoyable things. And so just, just being able to show people that you're missing out on God himself. Jesus says, this is eternal life, Father. In front of these 11, that they may know you and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. There's his definition of eternal life. Um, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Again, my sentence, I'm spending my life on blank. 
end of the day, hey, today, I know I wasn't perfect, know I had some sins, but I feel like, even with my job, responsibilities, tasks, family, things going on, I feel like that I'm growing in accomplishing the work that you've given me to do, Father. Or, or is that part of your desire? Is that part of your kingdom thinking? I feel like I've spent enough time on eternal matter and thinking through those things to where I'm including eternal matters in my everyday tasks. Is that a part of your life? And I'm not saying that you make that an awkward, weird thing. You're an accountant working in a building, and so now you get 10 seconds in an elevator, and it's like, ah, oh, doors about shut. Uh. So if you were to die right now, would you go to heaven or hell? Don't try to insert that in some weird way that didn't work for like 30 years. And so, uh, but, but, but really thinking through, like, hey, what about just saying, like, hey, man, I, in that elevator, hey, man, we've, we ride the elevator together. See you all the time. I don't know you very well. I know you eat lunch down there in the cafeteria. You only get lunch sometime for like 30 minutes? That's a good step, right? Instead of you wearing the Christian T-shirt and just telling him, I think you're going to hell. Oh, oh, by the door's open, go. Uh, that's not the best way, right? And so um, accomplishing the work that he's given us to do. And so we know making disciples is, is part of, that's for every one of us, thinking through how that's fleshed out. So when we look at that, uh, I've got there God's glory. Notice he says, this, I glorified you. So it's about God's glory. We want that to be the highest thing. And so God's glory must be the highest thing. So it's God's redemptive purposes. Um, the sal- and, and through that, salvation of souls, what you see. And what is salvation of souls? What have we said? It's not just, you don't have to go to hell. It's God with us. What, what, what did God, let's go back to Adam and Eve. Hey, hey, I'm with you, walking in the garden. You have all of this. And it wasn't like an hour. It wasn't like two days and they blew it. It was probably a long period of time. And then they ate from the tree. Enough to notice, oh my gosh, we feel guilty. Let's go hide. We don't want to see God. And what, what was God's response? Let me slap you down. Let me destroy you. No, hey, where are you at? Not because I can't see you. Where's your heart at with me? You feel that? Feel that distance? That's guilt. That's guilt of sin, of betraying me. And I'm coming and pursuing you. Where are you at? With Adam and Eve, he starts pursuing. What did God want? God with his people. What's the picture of the gospel? We see God in the Old Testament with with the tabernacle, with the tent, with with the the temple. What was God trying to show them and promising them? I'm going to send a Messiah. It's going to be God with you, the anointed one, the Christ. God with us. What do we celebrate in Christmas? God with us. So what's eternal life? God with us. What's heaven? Us enjoying God. So if your Christian life is, I want you to list of rules and not taking time to enjoy God in his presence corporately and individually, then, then we've made Christianity something it's not in Jesus' mind. And so all of this salvation of souls just means you, you get to be with God. You're reconciled with God. That's your end goal. In that, we, we, we see Christ-like transformation. We see maturity and love. Andy talked about that a couple of weeks ago in Ephesians 4, that all of this leads to the maturing of the believer, right? Um, that the, the equipping of saints for works of ministry that would lead to a maturity to where you're becoming more Christ-like. And then there's this life on life. How does that happen? It leads to that life transformation, but it goes through the process of life on life sanctification. Um, you're always the best Christian when you go alone and get in your closet and read your Bible and study and walk away going, God, I really feel good. I really feel good. You're always the best Christian there. You get in a small group and you're like, oh, man, I think Biden has all the answers. I think Trump has all. You're probably going to get some kickback, right? You're probably going to get some people like, ah, 
you might want to reevaluate some things, whether that's political, whether it's uh, life stuff. Our kids are perfect because we do this. And people are like, hey, your kid's killing our cat over there, right? So it's like you're, you're always the best Christian unless there's another believer around. And so sanctification is believers rubbing up against each other and having that just loving, uh, it's actually a light version of church discipline. Hey, you'd mentioned the other day that you, you just think that actually um, in group you kind of said this, or we were three of us were having lunch, and you said, well, you know, probably at the end everyone's going to get a, a chance to then finally see that it was God. And like, man, just understand that's universalism. That's not actually what the Bible teaches at all. That it's not going to be all paths lead to heaven. And so just, just those forms of church discipline, of correction through biblical understanding, and those things happen. So all of that life transformation happens through that. Um, so as we look at this, I, I want us to go now into, so I want you to see those big pictures that, that Jesus says, I want to um, show them eternal life. And that eternal life is that they may know you and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. And then I want us to walk through the rest of this, John 17. He, he makes a turn here. It was all about, Father, this is what, what we're doing, me and you. And now I'm going to talk about one focus point. And I want you to notice the focus, the turn that John 17 takes, extremely crucial point in Jesus' life and ministry. So let's, let's read through this, John 17. It says, I've manifested your name to the people. So what we're going to do, we're not going to go deep. There is tons and tons and tons of rich, rich depth stuff here. We're not going to go into the depths of theology. There's some beautiful, beautiful stuff that we'll teach through on a different time. We're, we're simply doing the first thing that you do. So when I read through, when you're going through seminary and everything, you learn to take a section of Scripture, and I may read through it literally 30 times, maybe 40 times, just making a lot of observations. What, why did he put it that way? Why did he put that phrase? What, what's the question he's asking? The big one is repetition. So we're going to simple, simple seminary 101. This is hermeneutics 101, uh, the study of the Bible 101. Repetition. Why is he, why is Jesus at this crucial, crucial time focused on this one thing? So we're going to kind of count these out. I've manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. So who's he talking about right there? The 11 disciples. Judas just left. So notice that. So we got the first time that Jesus is referring to the people that, whom you gave me out of the world. These 11 guys right here. Yours, they, there's the second time he's referred to them, they were, and you gave them, these men, to me. And they, the fourth time, have kept your word. And yet, we would probably look at their lives and go, man, Jesus it's a bad evaluation. They're not keeping your word. But like they, they fail a lot, right? They make a lot of blunders. And yet Jesus is going, they kept your word, meaning like they've believed, they've understood, and they're, they're about to be the ones who are going to take that word. So this is the fourth time he's mentioned them. Verse 7, now they, the fifth time, these 11 disciples, they know that everything that you gave, that you have given me, is from you. For I have given them, these 11, the words that you gave me. And they the seventh time that he's mentioned them, have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you and they, the 11, have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them, the 11. I am not praying for the world. You all right with that? Your theology all right with that? I'm not praying for the world at this crucial time. But for those, this is the 10th time he's mentioned these 11 disciples, whom you have given me. 
for they are yours. The 11th time. All mine, these 11, are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them, the 11. And I am no longer in the world, but they, these disciples, 14th time he's mentioned them, are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they, these 11, this is the 15th time he's mentioned them, may be one even as we are one. And by the way, that is ridiculous, crazy blasphemy if it wasn't coming out of Jesus' mouth. Father, let this crew of 11 and all of their junk, all their sin, all their problems, let them be one as me and you and the Holy Spirit are one. That's a crazy idea. Jesus wouldn't say it if he didn't have the, the power to at least at some point allow some of that to start taking place. So he, it's a crazy, crazy thought for him to say, let the church, let, let, let these people sitting in sojourn in 2022 be one and have the same type of unity that the Trinity has unity. You got some weird people in your small group? Got some weird people sitting around you? Got some weird people in your own family? Got some weird people in your marriage? that just don't think like you do. Like, it'd be so easy if they just thought like I do. And so, and Jesus going, let them have the same type of unity that the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit has. That is crazy. Like, that would be blasphemy if it wasn't Jesus saying that, going, I'm the one who can make that happen. And by the way, that's what heaven's going to be like. That's, we, we can't even fathom that because of how bad and jagged our relationships are, right? Like, we're so much like, it's just, I'm on an island and everyone else is weird. And everyone thinks you're weird. And so, um, simply counting the emphasis of Jesus' heart as he's focused his, his heart and mind in, on this idea of making disciples. Um, and we're just observing this. So, so, so far, we've got like 15 times. And I was with them, 16. It says, I kept them, 17th time, in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. Talking about Judas. Um, Let's go on to verses 13 through 19. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they, these 11 disciples, may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. So remember this also, just a little side note, not going too deep. Jesus thinks that they should have joy that he has, sometimes in our circles, sometimes in the church. Um, we don't enjoy Christianity a lot. Have you ever been around people that are so, maybe just so worried about uh, any kind of thing that they might ever do wrong, whether it's their dress, whether it's the steps they take, whether it's what they, just anything. They're so rigid in Christianity. They're not enjoying Jesus. They make everyone just like, oh gosh, like I don't even want to be around them. And so just think through that. We've been in circles like that, like people that were, were very proud of their quiet times, very proud of their study of the word, proud of the doctrines and theology they espoused and knew, but they didn't play well with others. And they didn't really enjoy God. And sometimes after months or maybe years, sometimes I'd kind of just throw that on the table like, hey, so do you feel like, here, here's a great question to assess. This may help you. You feel like God just lovingly is pursuing you and watching down over you with a smile, or is he barely tolerating you? <sighs> oh, I've had it about up to here, but Jesus, you know, come in grace and truth. And so I, forgiveness, mercy, but oh, look at this mess. Is God barely tolerating you, or is he pursuing you in love and enjoyment? If you flip that and begin to see that God enjoys you, 
Even if you come from a Calvinistic understanding that is uh, big on the depravity of man, if your, depra- if your theology leads you to the idea that God can barely tolerate you, you've completely missed the idea of Christianity. That is, John Owen says that is as much a slap in the face as someone who just rejects God and said, I will not receive your salvation. Because what you're saying is, you know, what Jesus did, I know the truth that his blood was spilled and that he died on the cross, but you know, it's just not good enough. You barely even tolerate me. You've missed the whole idea of God and love if your theology leads you to that. So quick assessment, just like God barely tolerating you because you're so messed up, still messed up, or is God lovingly pursuing you? Two different views of God there. So are you enjoying God and do you see that he's enjoying you? Are you enjoying Christianity? Jesus said, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. 21 times that he's mentioned them. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. I do not ask that you take them, the 11, out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them. That's the 28th time that he's mentioned them. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them, the 11, into the world. And for their sake, the 11, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in truth. So that's 31 times so far in only 19 verses. 31 times. Crucial point of Jesus' life. You'd think, uh, Sankey's plan would be like, the world. I mean, Middle East, it's going to be bad. It's going to be bad for a few hundred years. Like, let's focus on the Middle East, right? Like, they're all the world religions. What's Jesus going? These 11. These 11. These 11, Father. These 11. Now, now, you've got to understand the, the depth of that. That's the foundation of the church, right? That's the foundation of the church. Acts 1.8, power is going to come upon you. The Spirit's going to come. You're going to be my witnesses. That's how much is the weightiness of those. Remember, there's no plan B. This is, this is what he left behind. He didn't, even give, he didn't even give good instruction on like, hey, once I leave and you guys start scattering, here's what it's going to need to be. Rent a space out, have someone preach, have a worship team. Here's the songs you should sing. Here's the way you should dress. Here's how your children should. Like he didn't even do anything close to that, right? But so far he, in this, this crucial time, 31 times, he's going, Father, these disciples. So verses 20 through 26, I do not ask for these only. Oh, finally. After 32 times, now he's talking about the word, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. So 33 times, their word. So now he's praying for the world, for believers. So he's saying the people who believe through their message, that they also may be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Again, some crazy language. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them. And they may be one, that they may be one as we are one. I in them, 36 times, and you in me, and they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you have sent me and loved them. Father, that the world will know that you have loved them. Again, if that helps you, if you're barely tolerated by God, if he's, he's obligated to kind of be nice to you because of grace, but he doesn't really love you, if that's your view of God's acceptance of you, you need to take some time, some months, and rethink that. Maybe from the churches you've come from, maybe from the theology that we were so proud, but if, you're, if your rich theology doesn't lead to you to a loving, beautiful God enjoying you and you enjoying him, you've missed Christianity. Okay? He's not uh, counting your bad steps and just really ticked off. But, well, there's Jesus, so i got to let him in. 
That, that's a wrong view of God. And sometimes in our circles, like I said, after months and months and months sitting at dinner, I could just ask a wife. It seems like from your language that God's barely, barely tolerating you. Is that how you feel? And just tears. 41 years of following Jesus, and he can't stand me. They just break down. You're like, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. You, you, that's not Jesus at all. And they're saved, but they just have a really jacked up view of Jesus and God. And so uh, our, our theology shouldn't lead to that. Um, Even as you love me, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me. I want them to see heaven where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I've made known to them 42 times your name. What he means by, by I've made known to them your name, it's, it's your renown, your attributes, your redemptive purposes. I, I, these 11 disciples, they understand your renown. They understand your attributes. They understand the Old Testament all connected, the beauty of that, your glory, and your redemptive purpose. That was all fulfilled in me. They're, they're understanding that now. And I will continue, so your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in these 11, 44 times. And there's a couple times I was graceful. It's actually about 46 times at this poignant place. So I do all that to get us to notice. It's not task-driven, but did you notice the love, the unity, the fellowship, the closeness, the intimacy that Jesus at this crucial point goes, his highest part of the prayer is these 11. So in that, it's not task-driven, but it, it's love, the love of the Trinity. Same in them as in the Trinity. There's this deep care and love and fellowship and unity in Christ. But also, notice 44 to 46 times, there's a depth of intentionality. Jesus didn't just accidentally let this happen. The church just didn't accidentally happen. There was intentionality with direction and commandments and obedience expected. So now let's, let's take this little thing. So we took that. Now this is one of my favorite things. So you may go, you're not supposed to read like 40 verses because it puts people to sleep. But now let's take that and, and now let's, let's, let's take that idea that what we've looked at, John 17, seeing the intentionality, Jesus going, these 11 guys right here, that's it. No plan B, no steps three, four, and five. Here's these people. This is what I invested, poured my life into. Now let's take Tulsa and let's, let's begin to apply this to your life and my life and our surrounding culture. And then take away, now we're starting to take away the idea of this is insurmountable. So look at, um, the, 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 we're going to take a, a snapshot of Tulsa, just one little part, University of Tulsa. And, and we're going to look at, if we said the whole campus, let's start by just, and I'm going to put some hypothetical numbers out there. The first one, if the whole campus, how many people is on the University of Tulsa? If we said, not the whole city, can't reach the whole city, but we want to reach and we want to see Christ exalted on just the city of, uh, just the campus of the University of Tulsa. Let's say there's 10,000 students there, okay? So the next slide, we got 10,000. Well, well, let's be honest, how many are actually professing Christians. So before we go any further, so my mom's generation, if you were to ask her, 10,000 students on this campus, how many are Christian? Well, Sankey, um, I, I'd like to think 9,997, 9,900. I mean, that was her generation. Just like, you know, like, mom, but you see all the things that they do. And, you know, she was like, you know, like all these horrible things that she would see. But like in her mind, she kind of liked to think that way, that like, you know, but I, I think, you know, once they face God, they, they probably had been to Falls Creek. They probably had, 
So how many professing believers out of 10,000? Let's go to the next slide. So how many professing believers? I mean, I'll, I'll be extremely generous because I promise you it ain't 7,000. Out of 10,000 students there, how many professing believers? Well, a lot of people want to be graceful. That's extremely graceful saying 7,000. There's no way. But let's be nice. Okay, we're supposed to be Christian. We're supposed to be nice. Well, now let me, let me clarify. Professing believers, born again. So, so what does that mean? Actual believers. So let's go to the next slide there. Um, now we, we've looked at to be born again, it's probably going to show some fruit, right? We've talked about abiding. Remember we talked about the wheel? So now we've got something to kind of measure it by. Now you don't want to be legalistic in your measurement, but hey, are you a person that's in the Word, that the Word's important to you, that you're spending some time in prayer, that you say that you, you're not doing the Lone Ranger thing, like you live your life like you want to, you're never around believers, that you're not doing the Lone Ranger thing. In fact, you see the importance of the church, fellowship, and that evangelism should just, just be something. If you truly treasure Jesus, then, then you would talk about something that you treasure. If you truly value eternal life, you would want that to be something that you shared with others. So now we're beginning to measure, okay, maybe those people are truly believers. They're growing believers, right? So here's where a first, the first paradigm shift happens. A generation, a couple generations that, that looked at the raw numbers and wanted to think that out of 10,000, maybe 9,000 were believers, maybe 7,000. And so I'm Generation X, and we're the ones coming along, like, let, let's get real here. Let's stop with the rose-colored glasses. Like, uh, like no, Generation X is known for being kind of realist, and so, like, no, uh, that side's wrong, and that side's wrong. So do you, do you realize that this is way off here, these understandings here? And so um, you go into um, the actual, what, is, what does that look like, a growing Christian? So we're looking at these things. What would that look like? Let's look at the next slide. So let's be real generous. Growing Christians, out of 10,000 on the campus, I've been to TU a lot. We've spoken there. We've done some things. Let's say there's actually 500 growing believers who are in the Word, in prayer, sharing their faith, plugged into a church community. That never happens in college years, right? And so um, growing Christians, 500 out of 10,000. How many have led the next step? How many have actually led a person to Christ? So before he pulls the next step, just in your own head, you don't have to shout it out. How many do you think, how many students out of 10,000 have got with a person, sat down with them, whether quickly over four minutes or over an hour or over three months? How many have shared the gospel with a lost person and led them to Christ? 10,000. Bible Belt. Get a number in your head. Think it's high? Think it's low? So next slide, um, I, I'd say 30. I don't think it's 30 that have led someone to Christ. Out of 10,000, I don't think there's 30 individuals. You know any? So let's take it outside of University of Tulsa. Christian churches you've been a part of. Remember those 30 people in your church that like they just kept talking about how they're just lead, they led this person to Christ and they led this person? We don't really have those people, do we? We don't have the 20 or 10 people who have led someone to Christ, right? So here's the realist. Here's the realist Generation X guy who jokes about my mom's generation. And here, here's the second paradigm shift for all of us, for me. Hey, Sankey, do you think somebody else is going to be doing it? What, what church is leading 
people to Christ. Ten seconds after death, it's all, it's all you've got. It's all you've got. Any, any Cancer, heart attack, car wreck. Is it important? Well, surely, surely, Life Church's people. Surely, First Baptist BA. Surely, um, Sovereign Grace. Surely, somebody's got some people who they're being trained in eternity to where they're leading people to Christ, right? Surely, our schools and youth groups are, are learning how to lead people to Christ, right? So, do you see the second paradigm shift? We all go, I guess somebody else is doing it. So then the next level is out of 10,000, the next question is how many have taken the time to share the gospel, maybe just share life with them for three or four months and sharing their, the, the hope that they have and sharing the gospel. And then that person comes to faith, that person becomes a believer, they led someone to Christ, and now for one year they say, I'm going to show you how to get into the Bible, to get into Bible study, to get into prayer, to, to, to fellowship with the Spirit, to, to enjoy God, to be in the fellowship of other believers, to be plugged into a local body where there's, there's parameters of who's ministering to you, what, what kind of truth that you're hearing, what kind of beliefs, and then also parameters on who you're um, ministering to. And so how many have led someone to Christ and then discipled them for a year? 10,000, they followed up. It's probably not real high. Because most of us in the church go, man, to be honest, I wasn't really discipled. Some people kind of had a, that mentor in the church, or maybe your parents you know, tried to do that. And sometimes it was just like, our parents were just like, if you don't get in that van and get to church on time, like that was it. Like that was their discipling. Like you, they took you and dropped you off at youth, and that was it, or took you and dropped you off at the church or forced you to go. And so, but like at the home, in the home, intentional um, discipleship going on uh, with our boys. Like I, they don't know it, but I have this thing called um, individual spiritual plan. So an ISP for just me and Jamie always uh, assessing. So where are they at relationally with other people, socially? Where are they at academically? Where are they at physically? Um, where are they at emotionally, emotional, but where are they at spiritually? So, um, and so uh, individual spiritual plan. I'd encourage you to have one of those for each one of your kids and not just think, just taking them to church. And so evaluating, and it's miserable sometimes because you're like, man, if I start evaluating things, I'm bad myself. They're really doing bad. And like, now what do we need to do to really three months to kind of begin to shape this? And so how many people are in that? That's just in your family. These people that you love and care about the most, Right. So how many are taking the time with a follow-up and discipling people? For how, many, how many people do you know that have just discipled somebody for one year? And man, simple thing. Hey, my basic thing for you guys is I, I'm, I'm floating up to heaven. Go and make disciples. The ABCs. Go and make disciples. Not just converts. Not just trying to do something to use fear to get people to pray a prayer. We're in the Bible Belt. Everyone around us has been to Falls Creek four times going through high school and we're saved repeatedly or, or church camps and all these things or, or the old altar call where the, the sermon was not about God's word or conviction or repentance and the glory of Christ. It was about you know, three simple ways to have a better marriage. And I, I didn't even talk about the gospel, but at the end, now bow your head, repeat this prayer after me. Uh, okay, I don't want to burn, so yeah, I'll do that. And so that, that's just not, that's not produced a lot of growth and fruit. So I'll tell you, I would say, in the Bible Belt, in Tulsa, this may be hurtful, one out of ten people that you see are believers. If I said that in California, they would mock me and laugh at me. Washington State, Northeast, Southwest, Southeast, Northwest, the West, one out of ten 
are believers in Tulsa. If you said one out of ten are believers in California, they'd be like, "You are nuts." I'd kill. They'd be like, "That's heaven." That would be like uh, that would be like heaven to have that many believers around me. Like if, if one out of ten, just talk to people from those areas. I have guys in uh, Harbor Network. That that's what they're and we're, so we, we can have those conversations about what well, what's harder: being in a place where everyone already assumes that they're Christians. Or be in a place where everyone's like laughing mockingly going, oh, you're a believer in that book? Oh, that's ridiculous. Like people that just, you know, antagonistically go, I'm not a believer. So how many have followed up and discipled? And then the last one is just like, so then how many have done this? How many have had a person that they've shared the gospel with? That person comes to Christ, maybe a year, maybe 15 months, maybe two years later, maybe three months in, they come to Christ, you disciple them for a year, and they learn what? The process. I'm going to invest my life in a few. And they start going out and getting one or two people that they share the gospel with, and they're a multi- you just multiplied yourself. They now, the person that you led to Christ and discipled for a year, they have led a lost person to Christ, and now they have discipled them. Now you've got two people doing that. You know, what, what if, let, let's just talk, what if 10 of us inside Sojourn did that? Not because Sankey needs more money, we need a really cool building, uh, we need water because go and make disciples, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. Our mission statement, to exalt and enjoy the supremacy of Jesus Christ. You spend a year with someone talking about Jesus in the Bible, praying, they're going to get the picture that he is supreme above all things. You exalt and enjoy him. We're equipping the saints to do that. So we, we purposely added that one in. It's, it's too wordy to have that uh, a mission statement should fit on the front of a church. Well, not if, if you really care about the intentionality of it. Equipping the saints. And so then um, engaging that to, to multiply disciples and churches for the glory of God. And so that's slow work. So let, let's bring it back down to us. How are you doing on that? I've known this crap for 22 or 23 years. And I would say I'm like making a D on it. And so I ask for your forgiveness, but I also want you to know that I'm committed to this. I want guys in my life. I want guys that have different views on the way that their family is. I want guys with different stances on, on education or different stances on, and, and this may shock you, but I want some Democrats and Republicans, some independent. I want all that. I want discipling different guys at all those different levels, different socioeconomic levels where a CEO who has three companies and a guy who, who's making uh, maybe $12,000 a year. I think that's the beauty and the glory of the gospel, that God says all of that comes together. I want dads and moms learning how to disciple their children in that. And that they're also, along with that, as you go along your way, go making disciples. That's what the word go in Matthew 28 is. And so what did Jesus say? Hey, I've got all authority. The book in, I've got all authority. John 17, Father, thank you for this authority. I know which ones are going to be mine that you're bringing in. I'm praying for these 11 that I'm investing all of three and a half years of my life in these 11. You think for the next 20 years, you might could raise up 11 disciples? I've had guys around me who said, my goal, so this, I was like 28 when I heard this. They said, my goal is to have 40 guys over the span of my life. I'd like to have 40 guys that I leave behind. Whether I get killed at 35 or 40 or 45 or leave, live to be 80, I want 40 guys that I've reproduced where those guys have reproduced what I did in their life. Those women have reproduced what I've done. This isn't just a man's game. 
This is men and women. And we want to be a church where women are brought to that level. So we're not egalitarian. We're complementarian. But this applies to every believer. And so women, you want roles. Man, that's a beautiful role. Making disciples, discipling your children, discipling those around, discipling other moms. That's what we want to be about. John 17, I think, shows a picture at an extremely important time where Jesus says, this is my heart, Father. We get a glimpse of what's going on in his heart, and he's on these 11. Not the world even, but these 11. And I think that shows us that's the kind of intentionality that we could have. So we take that picture of the gap, what I call the gap, and then we apply that to our lives and go, man, how are we doing on that? Like I told you, I've been extremely burdened by it, convicted by it, but also encouraged by it because he says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. He also said in Acts 1-8 that the Spirit's going to come on you in power and you're going to be my witnesses. And so we have that opportunity in a, in a dark place. But don't think that some other church, some other believer in their job, that they're the ones who are knocking it out of the park. Don't believe that it's some other um, churchgoer, some other small group. This applies to us. So I know it's extremely convicting. And again, if that tosses you into, oh, God's never, and now I add this to another thing that God's not pleased about me. You've got the gospel. We look to the gospel. You're going to need the gospel. That's the message you take to lost people, but you're going to need the gospel to spur you on and motivate you because you're going to get down when you try to start discipling people. So I just challenge you to think through that. Would you consider investing in a few? Um, I think it's a beautiful picture. Um, as we close, this may be so convicting. You may be thinking through, man, um, I, I feel like I've just failed with this. I've never been taught some of this stuff. I want you to just take a, a minute as uh, Stephen and Rebecca come, just thinking through, where is your heart at with that? Is your heart lukewarm? Is your heart cold? Is your heart open to that? Um, just take some time as, as they come. I'm going to pray, and then I'll turn it over to them. Father, we, we do come just confessing that we know that uh, there's so many areas in our lives, just pattern sin sometimes, um, sin that so easily besets us. But Father, we also know that there are um, these omitted sins, not just the sins that we purposely entangle ourselves and commit, uh, committed sins, but also omitted sins where we're, we're not doing something that we should be doing something. We're not doing something that we were commanded to do, like making disciples. Um, we omit that. It's easier. It's more comfortable. We feel like that, Father, that our life is so jacked up and we've got our own problems, so how could we disciple someone until we become better? It's a complete misunderstanding of your spirit, the power of Christ, the power of the gospel. So would you help us in that? If there's people that are now feeling even weighted down with more lists to do or another task to do that they're already failing in, would you remove that? And let them see the beauty of you loving, like Jesus talked about in John 17, loving us, pursuing us. Would you allow us to put those aside and to ask you for people in our lives that we could truly see come to Christ, lost people, if we all had two or three people around our lives that we would pray for regularly, several times a week, that we would intentionally pursue? Would you give us understanding of what that would look like, Lord? I pray for the, the little ones who are in this church right now, Father, the, the undiscipled ones, the ones who are not yet to the age of coming to faith and not understanding the God. I pray that you would redeem 
and bring saving grace to them, Spirit, that you would um, allow them to understand the beauty of that. For, for people that are sitting here that are adults that have known about the points and the bullet points, I ask for you to bring understanding of the gospel and saving faith. We pray that you'd make us a place where that is what we're using as a metric, Father. The beauty of that. We thank you for um, your word. We thank you for the clarity of your word on this. We pray that you'd help us as we go forward. In your name we pray, amen.